to Classics, Kane Academy's podcast on classic works of literature, art, film, and music. I'm Andrew Zorderman, your host. In this episode, I'm back again with my good friend, Tom Wurge, Professor Emeritus in the English Department at the University of Notre Dame. Not too long ago, Tom and I had a chance to sit down and explore the classic story, A Christmas Carol, by Charles Dickens. This episode is the first of two. I hope you enjoyed the podcast recorded at Tom's home near the campus of Notre Dame. Well, Professor Tom Wurge, great to see you again. Thank you for for hosting me here at your home for another podcast. My pleasure. Yeah. Today, uh, we have the wonderful privilege of talking about uh, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. And I thought it'd be a great way to start a conversation if you could... Help all of us who teach students uh, and by explaining a few things that we ought to explain to our students, kind of to give a little context, a little background or history uh, before we dive in and start reading the book together. Yeah, well, I was. We know, of course, that uh, one of the uh, truly enduring characters in Christmas Carol is Tiny Tim, the figure of Tiny Tim, who has become mythic, archetypal, and so on, and. What's really important to remember here, I think, is that um, in the mid-19th century, uh, Dickens is writing, and children are a special um, preoccupation of his precisely because they are suffering so greatly. I mean, this is a time when chimney sweeps were not like the ones in Mary Poppins, you know, uh, dancing around on the rooftops, Dick Van Dyke, and mm-hmm. so forth, You're talking about. 10- and 11-year-old children being lowered into soot-filled chimneys and with no real protection, Mm. dying very, very young. And so when Dickens wrote Christmas Carol, there were, I would say, three um, forms of childhood he is most preoccupied with. One is um, uh, the neglect of children. Just outside of London, there's a huge institution uh, where children are suffering from cholera, and the administrators of that institution are utterly indifferent to them. They're really dying of neglect, in mm-hmm. effect. And Dickens wrote a series of letters, uh, ferocious letters, they've been called, uh, in- indicting them for that kind of malevolence. Uh, secondly, uh, Dickens uh, paid a very important visit to what was called the Ragged School, uh, a school run by Methodists for orphans. And he was very, very moved by the flight, by the plight of the uh, of the children there, who really were utterly destitute. And that set off something in his own imagination that would lead fairly directly to the writing of Christmas Carol. Mm-hmm. Third aspect, which is very important for students of Dickens, is that when Dickens was young, he. Um, wanted to be uh, a gentleman and perhaps go to Oxford or Cambridge, um, very much like Pip in uh, Great Expectations. But his father was thrown into debtor's prison, and he had to go to work. And he went to work in London in what was called a blacking factory, a factory where you uh, 
pasted uh, uh, labels on bottles, and it was a lot of child labor there. He was very young. He was utterly forlorn and didn't really know if he would even see his family again, didn't know if his father would get out of prison. We're not even sure how long he was there, but it was a, it was a period of tremendous uh, forlornness and tremendous isolation. And uh, Dickens said, as a grown man, that he was never able to walk past that factory, literally, without bursting into tears. And so he... Mm. Uh, ultimately was able to walk past it only after it had been it had been torn down and so that motif the the motif of the abandoned child mm-hmm. which is how Dickens saw himself mm-hmm. had a great deal to do with his consistently writing mm-hmm. about children and about mm-hmm. childhood and about the state of forlornness the mm-hmm. state of feeling he had to give up of course his ideas about going getting an education and being able to go to a university and uh, plunged right into the uh, the workaday world, um, and so the uh, ideal of the child, certainly, which is very important in Dickens, the idea of the child being rescued, being redeemed by someone, which also figures very importantly, of course, in Oliver Twist and in his other novels, is uh, is very central. But it's mainly his uh, empathy for children and their suffering and their early deaths. I mean, this is a time when the graveyards of London were just overflowing and, uh, and many of them overflowing, especially because of the, of the children who were dying long, long before they could even begin to grow up. That became a kind of uh, a plague in a way for, for Dickens. And so when he got the idea for... Um, uh, when he got the idea for Christmas Carol, he said, these are uh, his words, uh, he said that while he was uh, writing it, he said, I wept and laughed and wept again. And in writing it, I was walking through the black streets of London, 15 and 20 miles, many a night, when all the sober folks had gone to bed. So th- this was a story that possessed him, and possessed him especially because he, he knew that in the end, although he did contemplate having Tiny Tim die, very different, uh, a very different book, he decided, no, that that was not going to happen, that Tiny Tim, in fact, would live, and that he would live because of the conversion of this uh, horrific soul, mm-hmm. Ebenezer Scrooge. And that's what brought to Dickens the idea that uh, when he was walking through the black streets of London, he would laugh as well as cry. He would mm. break into laughter and then break into tears. And very much like Dostoevsky, uh, he believed that his characters were real. He spoke to them, mm. wanted to give them freedom. Uh, both writers said that, that they were not simply going to be uh, writers who made uh, their characters into puppets. They were the puppet masters. They were going to in a sense, provide for them. So character for Dickens was really critically important. So as he walked the streets of London, either before or while he's writing the book, uh, he no doubt would have gone through a section that was uh, like the section that Scrooge lives in. 
yes. right? And in the early part of the book, we we learn about that. So he walks home from work, and it's it's very striking, right? He's walking into darkness, right? It's an unlit part of the city, and it's kind of on the margins of things, right? In a warehouse district. Yes, yeah. very much so, very yeah. much so. And that, uh, you know, for Dickens, London was always... Uh, Reflective of both dimensions, you had you had a city of great wealth, mm-hmm. city of uh, uh, kind of very you know fancy and uh, and uh, uh, and aristocratic homes and people uh, mm-hmm. class system very much in effect at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then parts of London where uh, you know Jack the Ripper would roam, yeah. right? parts of of, uh, of London that would be utterly dreary and desolate. But 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 why 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 does Dickens place Scrooge in that part of town? Because Scrooge is a man of wealth, but he lives uh, in a sector that really is for the poor, for the marginalized. Yeah, he does. I think that uh, of course the reason is that it's cheap, right? Yeah. And ergo, yeah. Scrooge is anything. He's certainly frugal, yeah, to say the least. Uh, but I think the main reason is that Scrooge really is living in darkness. Mm. He's a soul without light. Without illumination, and that's true even of his uh, apartment there. Uh, that, that basically is uh, a creature of darkness, and in part he is a creature of darkness because he doesn't acknowledge uh, the mystery of Christmas, and he doesn't acknowledge the um, uh, the potential and the goodness of childhood. I, I think that for Dickens, the mystery of the incarnation is uh, pervasive in the narrative in different forms. Um, But it's something at the beginning of the narrative uh, Scrooge doesn't recognize, of course, right? He's solitary as an oyster. He's cold and and rejects others. And and in fact, I think that in in a strange sort of way, that's where the... um, uh, where the laughter uh, comes in because we would say, well, okay, I can imagine Dickens... Uh, wandering through these streets and so forth and weeping, as he says he did, which he cert- certainly did, no question. But where would the laughter come in? Where would the joy come in, you know, uh, especially? And uh, I think the reason for that is that Scrooge is so grotesque. He is so utterly bereft of any kind of human kindness, you know. Uh, there's no milk of human kindness, even skim milk, my guess would be. You know, it's just not there. Uh, and it's so exaggerated that at certain times it becomes comical. Right? Mm-hmm. The dogs shrink away from him. People see him coming and they leave. You know, They move to the other side of yeah. the street. That incredible conversation he has with his nephew, remember at the beginning, that any idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas should be boiled in his own pudding, yeah, yeah. right? And uh, and a steak of holly should be yeah. driven through his heart. Yeah. That is pretty... So there you've got uh, the believer in Christmas as a vampire. You know, you're locating in the coffin and driving a steak of holly yeah. through his heart. That's bad stuff. This is a mean guy. Yeah. And I think that there was a certain joy Dickens took in being as hyperbolic as yeah. he was about Scrooge. Not, not that there weren't people... Yeah. Like Scrooge, of course there were people who said, you know, uh, are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? Yeah. Uh, but on the other sta- on the other hand, uh, the sheer his sheer love of hyperbole, his yeah. sheer love of exaggeration, yeah. also makes Scrooge into uh, a kind of uh, grotesquely comic figure. So. Yeah, yeah. So it, I find myself, you know, with 
with Bob, his employee, they yes. swagging my head. Oh, what a boss, you know. And, and he's that boss you. that we all love to hate, you know. Yeah, right? And we're all talking about and and uh, over over a, a drink that night at the pub. He said, "Oh, guess what my boss did today?" You know. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So there is a yeah. I can see that. There's a nice comedic element there. Um, now the uh, pretty soon. Uh, Jacob Marley is on the scene, right? right? And so he comes to visit. And uh, so the, the story takes, uh, although there is kind of a delightful element, don't you think, about Jacob Marley, there's still, it, it, it's a darker turn, right? So now now sort of the, the examination is, is starting to peel back things. Absolutely. The, the darker turn is certainly there. And again, the importance of memory. Yeah, Mar- remembering Marley, who has died these years, and and Scrooge seeing his face everywhere, and I guess uh, Andrew, I've always taken the uh, spirits uh, to be um, angelic forms. Remember when when uh, Scrooge goes to his uh, uh, quarters, uh, he has a fireplace there. Fireplace is filled with biblical scenes. And it's filled, the narrator tells us, with images of angelic messengers mm-hmm. coming through the air. So the, re, the, the word angel means originally messenger. Right. And so I take, I, I, there's another reason where this is a story of conversion. We really have to read it as that. And it's kind of long debate about whether Dickens was simply a humanitarian or whether he was Christian. If he was Christian, what kind of a Christian was he? Uh, I think that probably Dickens would see himself as a very often a lapsed Christian, a Christian who didn't live up to his own uh, faith. But he did write a book for his uh, children called The Life of Our Lord, which is a book about Christ. And mm-hmm. it's, a, it's, a, it's a very uh, straightforward telling of the story of Christ. But it's very clear that his veneration for Christ is there. And it's very clear that Dickens... Um, was concerned about faith and elements of faith and his own faith and his own attempts to follow that faith in his in his life. He said that sometimes I feel as if I'm two people. I have the 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 one part of me or the one person in me is the one who tries to live morally and to do right and and uh, the other is its opposite. The the tendency to be selfish, not not to. Uh, love as I should the people I love or to provide comfort for the people I should feel comfort for, provide comfort for my wife and my children and so forth. So he, so forever Dickens was uh, uh, aware of these warring elements, I think in every human soul. I think it's you know what Lincoln called uh, the struggle that we have with the better angels of our nature, right? We, have, we, we know good and evil, we're capable of good and evil. Dickens said, Dickens said, I realize that I'm capable of, uh, uh, of some very malevolent things. And yeah, I, and, and we know he, them. He, he did not treat his wife uh, very well and, uh, and, and, and other things, which, which shouldn't. For, so we, we wouldn't want the, the students to be absorbed with that to the point where they're, it's detracting from the story. And, uh, um, so, uh, but the, the presence of evil, the possibility of doing evil, yeah. they're real, right? And Dickens knows that. He's very sober about that. And then, uh, so uh, that's very interesting about the, the uh, kind of the angelic reading of the, of the, of the spirits. Can, uh, briefly, was it common 
in British literature at that point in time to to have uh, ghosts or spirits? Well, very much. Well, the, yeah, the one tradition that really lends itself to that uh, idea would be the Gothic. You know, the, yeah. I mean, you have this revulsion against the 18th century and in, in, in some ways, or the early 18th century, the feeling that uh, everything had become too um, rationalistic, had become mm-hmm. uh, too much uh, a, uh, a scene of... Uh, of the intellect, uh, children being brought up to become uh, highly knowledgeable and almost machine-like. One of the one of Dickens's objections to uh, education, the way it was carried out, purely utilitarian. He felt uh, the main teacher in his novel *Hard Times* is named Gradgrind, which gives you some <laughs> sense of. Um, and so, it's like what, Father Purgatory, right? Like, yeah, in, uh, yeah. in O'Connor's story. Right? That's right. That's right. Exactly. Um, and so I think what happens is that uh, uh, is that, and you can be overly can be overly simplifying. But when the Romantics come along, they start writing about childhood more than childhood was written about in the 18th century. There's a kind of a, a shift. There's a greater interest in the emotions. There's a greater interest in my what we might say the soul, a great in mystery. And so you know the image of the. Uh, of the of the young woman walking into uh, a dark home and being convinced that evil spirits are lurking, and the sense of uh, horror, fascination with horror, uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, the the feeling that the intellect and science can get so carried away that they miss uh, uh, that they misuse the heart, they ignore the heart, they ignore sentiment, they ignore uh, the. Uh, the emotional aspect uh, of uh, of life, and um, and so uh, Scrooge, at his worst, of course, is a kind of um, mechanistic reductionist. Remember, he doesn't believe in Marley. And Marley, why don't you believe in me? You know, uh, you might be a, what a, a bit of an underdone potato. Right, you know, right. Might have, in other words, right away he goes to the uh, materialistic explanation for Marley's appearance uh, that. Um, might be simply indigestion. You, know, you can't possibly be real. But of course, then he comes to yeah. believe soon enough that he is real. Now, it makes him, Marley, especially fascinating because the other, the phantom and the other uh, messengers could clearly be angelic. Uh, Marley is not angelic in the usual sense, mm-hmm. um, sort of like Clarence in It's a Wonderful Life. You know, he's maybe trying to earn his wings, you know, somehow. But Marley still has a price to pay. He's still mm-hmm. doing his penance. And uh, that's what makes him, of course, exceedingly real to mm-hmm. Scrooge, who wants to, at first, deny his very existence. But um, he is he is real. But I would see him as a messenger as well, because mm-hmm. one of the fascinating dimensions of uh, the Christian vision of angels um, uh, is that they appear in very different forms, mm-hmm. forms that we really can't recognize. Um, uh, there's a, a story, a, a medieval vision of uh, an angel showing up um, every night at the same monastery, saying, uh, "I was in a shipwreck, and I wondered if you could, uh, if you could um, provide some food and lodging for me." And this happens week after week after week. Keeps saying, oh, "I was on another ship, and I was shipwrecked," and you know so. Monks are starting to get annoyed, as mm. any human being would, right? Really annoyed. But uh, can't remember if it's Saint Benedict or which saint it is. Says the next time he appears, bring him food on a silver platter, 
provide him with a comfortable bed. So I think Benedict knew that uh, he was an angel. It wasn't just an ordinary tramp. That, yeah. Yeah. So, so Christ appears, Christ comes uh, in such a way that we, as St. Paul says, we're entertaining angels unaware, not aware that they are angels. So even Marley, yeah. in his own way, serves uh, uh, as a messenger, an angelic messenger. Do you, um, do you think the, that um, his, Marley's personal motivation is uh, is it obligatory? Is he is there because it's a duty he has to fulfill, or do you think there is also a residue of humanity there? Is some kind of solidarity with this other fallen, you know, flawed man? I think I think the second is right. I think that Marley is he he returns from the afterlife. He's there as a messenger, as a, a warning. Certainly, to Scrooge, but he clearly has repented of his uh, of his um, uh, obsessions in life. Remember, you know, mankind was my business. Business, you know, yeah, business. Was, that's yeah, the yeah. word. Yeah, that's yeah, one yeah. of the words that's very, very powerful. Here, uh, Dickens has such a great respect for the power of language, the power mm. of words. Uh, business, you know, mankind was my business. So, when Bob Cratchit is pleading with his wife to, you know, be good to Scrooge. Okay, we know, we know that he, you know, a, can be a nasty old man, but be, and she just rails against him, remember? And then at one point, uh, Cratcher just says, Christmas. Yeah. That's all you have to say. Yeah. So he doesn't have to explain what Christmas is. He yeah. doesn't have to explain about the, the nativity, because they all know it very well. Yeah. But it's... Uh, the word itself is resonant. It's like being in church. There's yes. certain things you don't say, certain tenors you don't adopt. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah. Absolutely. No question. Yeah. And that's another place where I think with with Tim and so forth and the act of memory, um, and of course also the ability to change mm-hmm. things for the future, which Scrooge is so grateful for, that mm-hmm. Tiny Tim doesn't have to die. It doesn't have to be just that yeah. lone crutch, you know, and... See and remember where his wife says, "Well, you know, was um, uh, was Tim good in church? Well, as good as ever." And sometimes he says the strangest things. Uh, he said that perhaps it would be pleasant for people to look at him who was a cripple, and to remember uh, who healed cripples and who allowed the blind to see, yeah. the lame to walk. You know, so there's a it's a yeah. very powerful Christological argument going on. And yeah, not even an argument, but a vision going on throughout the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these are not things that humanitarians say. Right, uh, right. Yeah. Really, I mean, nothing wrong with being a humanitarian, mm-hmm. but uh, there's a deeply religious um, resonance here that's extremely mm-hmm. important. I think you reminded us earlier that uh, Scrooge is reluctant to take uh, Marley's presence seriously, and uh, has ways of sort of writing it off. And then Marley uh, resorts to uh, fear, right? He 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 scares uh, Scrooge, yeah. rattles his chain, <clears throat> raises his voice, right. and uh, you can tell, you know, through the through the dialogue, through the description of things, that that uh, Scrooge is really he's really afraid. And uh, isn't that an interesting necessary step to kind of awaken uh, Scrooge to the reality of things? That it has to has to rock his world with uh, fear. Absolutely. That's a really, really good point, Andrew, uh, because that idea of the, not only that the fear of the Lord, you know, is the beginning of wisdom, but that fear is uh, 
a very natural part of the human condition. Now, for many of the Gothic writers, you know, fear is sort of delicious, you know, uh, in itself. It has a good sort of, we right. like to be frightened, we yeah. like to be scared, and, and so on. But I think that uh, fear that is generated by uh, the recognition of the way life is, the recognition of um, fearful elements in it, that is really, really critical, I think, for Dickens. Uh, I think Dickens knew a lot of fear in his life, I think. And, uh, a lot of the fear was generated by his believing that he, or, or worrying that he couldn't live up to his best ideas about what it means to be a human being. Mm -hmm. Good husband, good father, mm -hmm. very mixed relationship to his own children mm -hmm. uh, in a way. And, uh, and also, of course, somebody who was absolutely um, uh, obsessed by writing. Writing is a solitary activity, right? It just is. And very often, you might not want people around. You want, might want to be by yourself, in effect. And so um, Dickens worried about that as well, I yeah. think, because he said, you know, here I'm becoming what I was when I was a lonely child, and I was absent from my family, and now I'm cutting myself off again. So, But on the other hand, he needed that time to write. He needed to, uh, the, it's just that all writers, I think, tend, tend to worry, uh, Salinger certainly did, at least in his toughest moments, that uh, their characters are becoming more real to them than their family or than other human beings. Mm. Because they really did believe, certainly Salinger believed that his characters were were real. And mm -hmm. one very moving obituary said that they would hope that Salinger is now with them, mm. with all of the characters that he that he created. Because um, and Dickens was the same way; he spoke to his own characters, and not that they were mad; that they just wanted to give them life. They they wanted them not to be stereotypical, you know. Mm. So I think so. He was very fearful. I think that he he writes a good deal out of that fear, and he said that all of his villainous characters came from his capacity to imagine his own evil and or at times even commit you know that that evil he said he he always wanted to be like his simplest characters like little nell mm -hmm. uh, or barnaby rudge uh that he wanted to be uh, uh barnaby he described once uh as a kind of holy simpleton and he wanted to be that he wanted that simplicity in his life he wanted the uh, he wanted a faith that was simple in a way and fundamental and basic. And, um, and he identified, by the way, for the most part with the Methodists. He felt that they were doing the most good to, for the poor in, uh, in London and so forth, more than the high church Anglicans. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, but, uh, and, and so would, would we have been, would, would this be, uh, are we still in the, the second great awakening at this time or, or would this be beyond that? Yeah, this would be about, what well, would be about, I would say mid-century, uh, mid-19th century, I would say. And so you have these um, uh, changes going on. Or, I mean, uh, Methodism comes out of the Romantic period, fundamentally the earlier mm -hmm. 18th century with John Wesley and, mm -hmm. and others. And so there are great changes going on. And, of course, the Methodists um, uh, were often looked down upon by the more, you know, landed gentry of, uh, of England, the... Uh, given uh, the class structure, and a river runs through it, you may remember that um, the father, the Presbyterian father, uh, 
describes Methodists as Baptists who can read, (laughs) which is really quite funny. Uh, But it's also funny that a Presbyterian is saying that because that would be the sort of apex of where many Protestants of the time would see themselves, you know, mm-hmm. the, kind of the apex of, mm-hmm. of Protestant, uh, Protestant yeah. Christianity. Uh, but, um, but so there would be a lot of turbulence, a lot of yeah. change, uh, a lot of uh, sort of rethinking, you know, about um, the nature of, uh, of uh, even the historical Jesus. That was, a little, that was to come a little bit later. But mm-hmm. uh, basically Dickens is very much... Uh, in the midst of that, I would uh, yeah. I would say. So, so one of the things I, w- I had in mind when I asked that question about the Great Awakening, I, I know that in England, with the Industrial Revolution, you had a, a lot of rural people coming into the cities to get employment, right. and they brought with them their edgier, more evangelical uh, yes. faith, and mm-hmm. it kind of knocked heads with a, a higher church expression of, of Christian faith. Right. And is that what you're talking about as, as, as a mix that's comparable to that? Yeah, I think so. I think yeah. so. Because when the Methodists were uh, growing very strong mm-hmm. in, in certain places, and uh, they their emphasis on the emotions mm-hmm. uh, rather than a purely intellectual assent to do- doctrinal uh, propositions mm-hmm. Would be part of it. Uh, they love to sing. They love to, uh, you know, feel kind of um, um, the emotive part of faith, the mm-hmm. the part that would allow them to be very public in their faith, and that would um, later the Salvation Army grows out of the same uh, the same uh, feeling that music very very important part of it. Now a good Anglican would say, well, you know, we love music as well. You know, we have organs and we have. We, but it's a different kind of yeah. it's a different kind of, of response. Yeah. Um, it's uh, deliberately, I think, more um, emotional, more heartfelt uh, in in that way. And uh, so I think those uh, those who care for the um, the lowly, so called, are the ones Dickens most identifies with. Mm-hmm. I think he admired the um, he admired I think the uh, the Methodists for the work that they were doing with the poor now many Anglicans were too sure you have low church Anglicans you know yeah. the high church the low church mm-hmm. and uh, the uh, remember that early speech that uh, the nephew has with uh, when Scrooge says you know it should be buried with a stake of holly you know through the heart mm-hmm. he says uncle you know how can you say that and he said I have always thought of Christmas uh, apart from its uh, origins, and then he adds, very importantly, I think, if anything can be thought of Christmas apart from its origins, apart from its meaning, mm-hmm. uh, assuming that it can't, of course, Christmas wouldn't be there without Christ right. and, and, and the nativity. Uh, but he says, it, to me, it's the time of year when um, when human beings don't look down on others, and, and the class system, you know, very rigid, really, in, in England at that time. And uh, and but they see themselves as um, fellow passengers to the grave. Hmm. Kind of a wonderful image. Hmm. Not at all morbid. We're all mortal. We're all mortal. And of course, that's the the real recognition that Scrooge has to come has to come to. You know, yeah. who are all those people? You know, somebody died. You know, who's who's died? You know, and then that absolutely stark recognition of his own mortality. Right. Uh, is uh, just uh, jarring, but indispensable. Without it, you don't really have a true conversion. Yeah. Before we leave uh, that scene with Jacob Marley, uh, 
I wanted to know, how do you respond to the, uh, the imagery? As Jacob Marley leaves, I believe Scrooge goes to the window and he looks out and the, there are all the other spirits that are like Jacob yeah. Marley. And they're spirits he's never seen before, but they're, right. they're there in London. And they're floating around uh, in the same state of regret and torment that Jacob Marley is in. How do you respond to that? What yeah. do you think of that? Well, you know, I think, uh, I, I guess the way I would see it, Andrew, is that what Scrooge is recognizing is a kind of um, connectedness uh, between uh, the afterlife and this world, a kind of connectedness between the spirit and, and the physical uh, the spiritual and the physical, uh, the recognition that not everything can be reduced to biology. Let's say the 19th century, I think, uh, in Germany, uh, somebody had decided that, well, yeah, we can talk about God, but only if we are willing to say that at most God might be, and this was his image, a gaseous vertebrate. Well, you know, that's a little bit like, a, you know, the underdone potato, you know, he might yeah. be bit of beef, but you know, this, yeah. this absolute insistence that everything is mechanistic, that everything is material, that the spirit, that the world of the spirit simply doesn't exist. It's not there. Mm. And I think what Scrooge is being shown by that vision, so now it's not just Marley, it's others, you know, the recognition of others um, that's beginning to come home to him in a way that it really never has before. He's because uh, one of the fascinating things about very often conversions are portrayed as very sudden things, you know, very momentary, very sudden. Um, and we could say that of Scrooge, but we have to recognize that this has been building up in Scrooge for a long, long time. You know, there's the sad young man at school and the memory of his sister Fan, right, who said, you can come home. Yeah. Fathers, so, well, you know, that wasn't true for Dickens, really. I mean, he couldn't come home. Yeah. He, he, they, one of the, the biographers seemed to agree that he only left the blacking factory. And again, we don't know exactly how long it was exactly. Um, I mean, it seems forever when he, when he writes about it, but we really don't know. And he runs into a relative of the families, and he's, he says to, says to him, how is my family? And, and he says, oh, well, they're, they're better. And he said, well, can I come home? Would you, would you ask them if I can come home now? And he he brings them. Yeah, yeah, that you can, you can go home. That that's how. You, so you got the feeling that everything was so turbulent in the family. I mean, not that his mother didn't love him uh, or his father, but his father was very much like um, Mr. Micawber and David Copperfield. You know, is the person who says um, something something will turn up. I'm sure that something will turn up next tomorrow or next week, or I'll get a job. And kind of a profligate. Guy, you know, not, not a not a um, not a malevolent fellow at all. I mean, deliberately, uh, but kind of neglectful, kind of careless. Um, played to perfection in the uh, in what the David Lean film by um, W. C. Field. I mean, just absolutely perfect, utterly articulate. You know, and uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Micawber, uh, that. Um, uh, who really was a stereotype, you know, of the uh, of the father, basically, you know. Uh, oh, my dear boy, how are you? And, and he, he, the rhetoric, you know, a lot of the a lot of the uh, uh, and and always the idea that uh, something would would turn up. That that's how they can sort of saw his father. He did not see his father as malevolent. Mm-hmm. 
but he saw him as somebody who was uh, careless, who was always falling into debt. And then when he would, you would go to those horrific debtor, debtor prisons. You know, you were in there for as long as it took you to pay off the debt. Sometimes you couldn't be in there for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And the family would suffer, without a doubt, uh, no, no question. So I think that vision, that broader vision is... is um, it's now coming to Scrooge that life is much more than surface materialism. It's mm-hmm. much more than that. And he's repressed that for so mm-hmm. long. Um, because then, of course, we, we do recognize that Fan uh, has died young, right, giving birth to Scrooge's nephew. Mm-hmm. And no question that it, it, Dickens doesn't go into a lot of detail there, but it seems pretty clear that... Uh, uh, that uh, he is that Scrooge is blaming the nephew for the death of the nephew's mother, the death of Scrooge's sister. So there's a real um, there's a real melancholy there, you know, a real sense of sadness and isolation. And so, even though it may seem that this uh, that this conversion is immediate and sudden, it's a long time. Mm-hmm. In the making, really, you know, and the fact that he is then so joyful at the end indicates how repressed this part of Scrooge has been. That he is capable of joy, he is yeah. capable of goodness, he's capable of generosity. You know, I'm just going. You're late again. I'm just going to have to raise your salary. Yeah, you just and those. I still love the old Alastair Sim. 1950 version, mm-hmm. the best. Remember, he, I don't deserve to be so happy. Because the the uh, the absolute joy is just as great as the uh, despair mm-hmm. uh, earlier. And so it's you could say, well, yeah, it's a, it's it's dramatic and sudden. Some would say melodramatic, but I think looking beneath the surface, it's something that's been in the works for a very very long time, really, which is. What, what makes it so moving, you know, mm. I think, finally. And all the bells on earth shall ring on Christmas Day, on Christmas Day. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Classics. I hope you enjoyed the interview, and we'll tune in for the second part next week. The song used in this episode is I Saw Three Ships by Ben DeVries from his album The Christmas Mixtape 2010. Please join me again next time and bring your friends and family. I'm Andrew Zorneman. For everyone at Kane Academy, we look forward to meeting you again on Classics.